So let's take a reading from James chapter 1, and we'll start from verse 1 again. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The reason I've read the whole of that portion again, though our focus is going to be on verses 12 uh, through to 18, is the importance of seeing the context of the statements that James is making as he's developing his letter and his message to the people who are his recipients. It's an important uh, Bible interpretation thing that we do that. There are verses in here that we take out and we use as soundbites at various times but when you see them in their context they they have a particular meaning that that was what was in James's mind as guided by the spirit that he was wanting to convey to those who were receiving his letter we said last week this letter is a general letter to those who maybe had been dispersed because of the persecution that arose in Jerusalem after Stephen's death uh, persecution started there from the Jews against Jewish believers and they would scatter uh, out into Judea and Samaria and beyond, as the Lord had said they would. Uh, James, I made the case last week as well, is, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He's, he's had an intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus and has come from unbelief to absolute belief in Christ as the Messiah, the one that God had promised to be the saviour of men and women. But this message goes to these people and in this opening section in these uh, 18 <laughs> verses we have the same words that's used to describe trials and temptations and I need to say this from last week again because we're moving into one sense of it that wasn't there last week. Last week we were thinking of the word in the Greek that's translated in the earlier section as trials and I was saying that the people who had been pushed away because of persecution had probably resettled in their new places 
And the level of persecution in terms of threat of life had probably diminished quite significantly because they'd escaped. So now they were settling in a new place, but with that came the low-level um, persecution and social rejection that would characterise our lives today as Christians. Uh, our lives are not at threat in this country, but yet there is persecution and it's low-level. And it's a social rejection type of thing because uh, our belief in God to begin with and our belief in God through Christ and who he is is just mocked by uh, secular society. And that's, I think, the setting of James. And that's why what he says then is so relevant to us today. So this Greek word that is translated in the earlier section by the English translators as trial is essentially the same word that is developed later as temptation. And I was saying that it's really speaking about the whole of life and the experiences and the circumstances that we all, as believers in the Lord Jesus, endure every day. He said in verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now that's just the experience of life, I believe. And what James is getting at is, Christian, you be very careful how you respond to the circumstances of life. And if you're struggling in that response, you ask for the wisdom which he speaks about in verse 5. Now, I'm just going to add something to what I said last week about wisdom. It's a careful interpretive thing that you look at the other occurrences of the same word that are used by the same writer. This is the only writing we have from James in the New Testament. So he's using wisdom in a certain way that is explained by James 3.17. If you just look uh, over to that just very quickly. He's, he explains in the verses prior, he's talking about wisdom. In fact, let's, let's read from verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. That's how James wants, James wants us to understand the wisdom he is saying that we appeal for. That we will be reasonable people in our circumstances of life. And that we'll be pure. And that's important for where we're moving to next. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure. So he's speaking about the importance of purity for believers in a society that is so impure. So I add that alongside what was said last week. Now, this Greek word, which in one sense is translated as trial, is done so because it's explaining that the circumstances of life that are under the sovereign control of God and in his complete knowledge of everything, they come at us and they are an external thing. What we're moving on to here in verses 12 onwards through to 18 is when those circumstances which are to be endured, becomes something that creates a response within us that can lead to sin, and then it's a temptation. So there is a difference here between trial and temptation, though the same word is used in the Greek. It's to do with the response. One is we endure the trial or the circumstances of life for the glory of God, and we ask God for help in every aspect of life. And then as it moves into temptation from verse 13 onwards, there are those things that come at us in those circumstances of life 
that have a response within us in the nature that we have as sinners that responds and we're told to resist. So one is to endure the external circumstances of life and the other is in specific things that come at us we're to resist and because sin is the result if we do not. So that is the background of where we're getting to. James had said that we're to ask for this wisdom in our circumstances and we're to ask for it in the sense that we're, we're not relying on our own strength. The double-minded and unstable person in all their ways, as he describes it, is someone who thinks that their own life and their own strength and the things of this world are able to sort themselves out or can overcome the troubles. And God is just there as a, a backup insurance plan that we appeal to now and again. That's the double-mindedness that James is getting. He says, don't be like that. Be single-minded in your devotion to God. Single-minded, single-hearted, fixed on God's promises in his complete sufficiency, whatever our financial circumstances, we were there last week, is for what purpose? That we would come to Christian maturity. That's what James is saying. Christians, grow up. And you grow up right. And you grow up before God so that the glory of God is seen in your life and it impacts others. That's the message of James. So let's get into verses 12 onwards. I finished with verse 12 last week because it does act as a bridge between the first section and this section. Blessed is the man or blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. So there's somebody who's enduring the circumstances of life that are coming at them as those who are citizens of heaven living in a foreign land. And there's something in that that's important. Do we actually live like aliens? Or are we quite comfortable with what's around us? Blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. For when he has been approved, that's like doing a, a test or setting up an experiment to test something. That's the sense of the word. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We were saying last week, if we love the Lord, then we'll live as if our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul refers to it. And we will live as aliens in this world. And we will persevere in the circumstances of life that come at us. Appealing for the wisdom from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, and so on. We'll appeal for that so that we might respond appropriately as a Christian in our lives. We'll then receive the crown of life. I don't think that's just speaking of something in the future which will come to believers at the judgment seat of Christ. I think it's speaking about the victory. Because that's the crown that's referred to. It's the athlete's crown, so they would have received a wreath on their heads for victory in the race that they've struggled through. And that, I think, is given to us. There are times when we can, we can sense, by the grace of God, the victory of this life, this resurrection life. And that crown can sit on your head and you realise that the crown is Christ's. But it comes to us because of his victory. Verse 13 then shifts. <coughs> So looking at trial and enduring that, <clears throat> we then come to this vital thing in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This is one of the most fundamental scriptures that declares to us the attributes and qualities of our God. That we have in the word of God. We're not to say. Whenever we're going through. 
whatever circumstances we're there and we're enduring. And we sense that there's something within us that responds to it and we're, we're caused to pursue a thought process that might end up with action that takes us into sin. We're never ever to say that God is to blame for that. And I hear it quite often when I'm talking to people. Oh, God has made me this way. So therefore the things that I'm doing um, are just because of who I am. Let's be very, very careful to, to say that because we're effectively saying that God is responsible for our sin. God is not the author of sin. God is perfect and pure in all things. And James says that here. He says God cannot be tempted by evil. Why is that? If you think about temptation, temptation is something that comes to us that um, deceives us into thinking that our life is not complete unless we have that thought or that experience or that thing. So we sense we're lacking something and the temptation comes that we must have it. God cannot respond that way because God is all in all. God has everything. So it's futile to pursue a line of thinking that ends up that God would be the one who is responsible for sin and taking us into sin. We can't go there. God is perfectly, absolutely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He wants for nothing. He's not lacking in anything. He is entirely and completely satisfied in the glory of his own being. So therefore, God, he cannot be tempted by evil. And because of that, he himself does not tempt anyone. God permits, of course, in his sovereign purposes and knowledge, the circumstances of life. Look at Job's experience. There was evil in that. If you're looking for the ultimate example of God's permission of evil that will ultimately lead to the greatest of good, you look at what we've remembered this morning at Calvary. God was over it all. It was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But within that plan was the wickedness and evil of men and their sin. But through it would come the greatest good. Now, this is a tension that's there in Scripture. And none of us, I think, can ever satisfactorily resolve it. That you have the sovereignty of God in all of his purity and holiness. Nothing of sin. We cannot trace anything back to him as the origin of sin. That is what we are presented with in God's word. And we have to accept it by faith. But alongside that, you have the responsibility of human beings for sin. And their responsiveness to the circumstances of life. I'm not going to try and pursue the origin of sin. But I think we, we have to land it at, uh, at Lucifer. Who fell from his place because he thought he could uh, achieve that which he felt he was lacking in not being God. He comes in and there's the deception in the garden. And so on. But we need to be very careful here. God's word says that God is sovereign. And holy and perfect in all that he does. Mankind is held responsible for the sin that they are. Uh, I remember hearing once that someone said. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That is our nature. Run that one round in your mind and work it out. David knew. He said I've been conceived in sin. He knew he had come into this world. As part of a fallen race. So we can never say. God has made me this way. 
So therefore the proclivities that I have towards certain things and the things that take me in things contrary to God, that's God's fault because this is who I am. And the circumstances around me, God has permitted them so he's at fault. It's not that at all. Let's never go there. We can't say it because God has never made us with an attitude and a desire for sin. That is something we inherit as sinners. So, the caution on this, let no one say when he is tempted. Temptation, something appealing. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Lay hold of that and hold it firm. and Never let go of it, and never fall into the trap of blaming God for anything <coughs> in your life. I'm not saying we don't struggle to understand our circumstances, but what James is saying here is, you be careful in your response to those circumstances that you're not led into sin. Because God, he may in his sovereign purposes allow things that are evil around you. But your response in that moment is to his glory. Now here's the challenge for us today, isn't it? How do we respond? God does not make us with a desire for sin. We inherit that through fallen humanity. Verse 14 and 15 then explains further what James is getting at when he's speaking about temptation. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now using the NASB in, in there because some versions say desire and it's not strong enough. It's lust. Instantly you think of lust, you think of, you, you think of something. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's one of the most hideous illustrations in all of scripture. Two children, child and a grandchild, that are the product of a circumstance to which our spirits and our being respond to negatively against God's um, perfect will for us. There's that response which takes us down a path that's described here, that we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. And when that lust is conceived, it's the image of, of a child being conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin is the product of allowing that process to happen. But then see the outcome of that. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Brings forth is the same word again, it gives birth. Actually, the NIV does give you that sense. It gives birth to death. You have sin and it's child death. And that's the great problem of humanity that's there throughout the scriptures that God has stepped in to sort out for his glory and for our good. The unstoppable consequences of a sinful response to life's circumstances is sin and death. Now the carried away and enticed in here is important and uh, it's, it's actually a word that only appears here and, and it's used as a, as a lure or a bait. Uh, so it's when somebody goes fishing and you're trying to um, deceive the fish into thinking that what you've put together in, as a little fluffy thing on a hook and you cast it into the water and you bob it up and down or whatever it is and uh, you're trying to trick a fish into thinking uh, that's food uh, but hidden within it is the hook and the fish comes out from wherever it's hiding and it comes out and it gulps it and suddenly it's hooked and it's brought away. That's the sense of the two words there, carried away and enticed. That's it. James is saying to us, there are circumstances where we look at something and we're deceived by a perceived goodness in it. But there's a hook right in there that's going to grab us and take us away. 
I'm the world's worst fisherman. It's, it's laughable because any time I've gone fishing, I've caught nothing. Um, seriously. Even in a little channel that we went fishing with um, outside Buxton where fish were moving around, we went with the Williamson clan. Everybody else caught a fish bar me. I was there for an hour and a half, couldn't catch a thing. Went fly fishing in Canada, didn't catch a thing. Went fishing when we were in America this time, didn't catch a thing. So frustrating. I'm obviously not good at enticing the fish. But here we go. This little thing with a hook hidden in it is something that attracts the dumb fish, if we want to say it that way. You know, what might be an attractive thing for you is not the same thing that's an attractive thing for me. What's a temptation for you is not the same that is going to attract me. There are things in my life that I'd be ashamed to declare to you openly here that will attract me. And there's a hook in them that carries me off. And before I know it, I'm into sin. And it brings a death in the experience of my situation. Come in, Steve. And uh, we have this in us that responds to the things of sin. It's part of our sinful nature. It's there. And we need to be careful to identify the things that in our lives we react and respond to that are going to take us away. This temptation that we're talking about is this deception uh, by our minds and by the adversary as well into telling us that we need this because life with God is lacking. As a Christian, life with God is the fullest life. Jesus said, I've come, you might have life and have it to the full. He came to give us the fullness of satisfaction in everything and to bring us out of this situation where we would respond to things in life that take us to sin and to death. When we respond, we're really saying, God, I'm not happy with who you are for me in Christ. Think about the seriousness of what sin is. That's where we go with this. Now, the lust word here means to be excited by something. It's actually used in a positive sense by people who are caught up with the things of God and they're excited by the things of God. But the main use of the word is when it's describing something of a negative sense. It has the sense to the word of a power that draws and entices and lures to bring someone under its control or domination. And we know that's what sin is. Those of us that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ know that sin has been forgiven because Christ has borne sin on the cross for us and God is satisfied with Christ's sacrifice for us. And by faith, we are told in God's word that we know the forgiveness of sins for that. But we know that as sinners saved by grace, we continue to sin. And we know that these things can come in and can dominate our lives to the point where there's death in our lives of service for God. So it's right that James gets right at this at the beginning of his letter. He says, you, you be careful how you respond to life circumstances and particularly to this. But notice this, that what James says here, and the text just reading was, um, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice he says the temptation is not sin. The point at which we become guilty before God is when something becomes sin. So we can be encouraged in this, that there is a point at which we can pull back from the enticement of something and go another way and be saved from the consequences of that hook that's there hidden that's going to drag us off 
into something that will lead to the death of something in our experience. Temptation is not a sin. There's that response from our sinful nature to that external situation. But by God's grace, we can overcome if we appeal to him to remain holy in the matter. But it's when we bite. Conception occurs and sin is the product. So my, my appeal here to myself and to all is to know those things in life that come in that we think are going to give us satisfaction and joy. We know deep down it's only going to be for a moment. We know the hook is there. But yet it carries us off. Let's identify those things and take active steps to not go there. We need a better view of the seriousness of sin. And how do we get that? Is it by focusing on sin as I've been doing for the last five minutes? No. We get a better perspective of the seriousness and hideousness of sin by considering the glory of the holiness of God. Imagine what it was like for the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfection as the son of God who took on human flesh to come right here for us. What was it like for him to live in a sinful world? A horrible, horrible experience. We do well to think on that. But how do we deal with the temptation that comes? Practically, you don't put yourself in the place or the place of thinking or the environment or the circumstances where you know the thing that will hook you and take you off is going to be present. Don't go there. What else? It's not enough just to say no. I'm convinced of that. Because you say no and your mind runs round and round and round and you justify that this is not that bad and no and no is not enough. What do you do next? You appeal for the strength of God. And his promise is to be everything for you in Christ. And somehow, with his grace and with his help, your mind is shifted from that which would take you off into sin and death. And you focus on the glory of who God is in Christ for us. So we take active, positive steps to ensure that our minds, our eyes, our ears, sense of touch, all of our senses are not exposed to something that we know deep down is going to take us away from God in sin. That will mean some serious, wise, wisdom from above decisions. Because remember, the wisdom from above is first pure. So we're pursuing this life of holiness for God's glory. Verses 16 and 17 of James 1, he goes on and says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Stop at that. He says, don't be deceived. It's the continuation of the same thought. He says, don't be like a fish that sees this bait on the hook, doesn't know the hook is there. Don't be deceived by the things that this world will tell you are the things that satisfy. Don't be deceived. Beloved brethren, or beloved brothers and sisters, that's the sense of it. It's one of the few times you get that expression in the New Testament. So James here, as a man who's grown up with the Lord Jesus, has not believed in him, but then has come to faith in him, is is knowing the love of God and the love of his heart towards these people to whom he's writing comes through as well. Don't be deceived. So the appeal for me who love you is don't be deceived. We lay hold of the promise of John 1, 1 John 1, 
You know those verses in 1 John 1 where it says that uh, if we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. But when we sin, we are to go as those who have known the forgiveness of sin ultimately but still continue in sin and need to know the forgiveness of God's sin, we appeal to God through Christ and we come to him who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, we lay hold of 1 John 1 verses 7 through the 9 for that, but we don't use that as an excuse to carry on with behaviour that is sinful and leads to death. We cannot. I'm trying not to go to the other writers of the New Testament, but you go to Romans 6 and Paul says the same thing. He's amazed at the astounding, boundless grace of God. And he says, some of you are thinking that because God's grace is so wonderful, it gives you license to do whatever you want because God's grace will overcome that. Shall we carry on sinning then? No, we're to change because we realize that in doing those things, it's bringing a death. And you know death is the ultimate that cuts off a relationship. And if something is there in life, the response to a temptation or multiple temptations and we allow the hook to carry us off. It takes us into the death of our relationship with God who has brought us to himself through Christ to begin with. Let's, let's work at this. Every good thing given, then in verse 17, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So very quickly James says, with that situation, of explaining what temptation is and how sin comes from it and death comes from it. He says, you would be reminded that God is for you in everything and every good thing and every perfect gift that you know in your life has come from the Father of lights with whom there's no shifting shadow. It's a wonderful metaphor because he's referring to how the sun will travel from one end of the heavens as it looks to us and, and set in the other. And as it does, the shadow that's, that's cast by it moves. He says, here's one who's the father of the lights. He's the one who created all of that, and he is light himself. And because he is light, there, there is no shadow cast. He says, look at the glory of who God is for you. And he is for you in Christ, and has everything to satisfy you in Christ. And every good thing has come from him. So don't be deceived into thinking the passing fleeting pleasures of sin are something to pursue. And God will just forgive us when we recognize the wrong. No, we go after the things of God who is perfect in all his ways and wants us to enjoy that life through Christ. The best of gifts. Paul said it, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 5, isn't it? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This brings us to considering now the person of the Lord Jesus. Because we are told in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted. Hebrews 2 verse 18. If you want to turn to it, you can. It's just a few pages before where we are in James. Hebrews 2 verse 18. Just listen to what this says. If, if you don't turn to it, if you do, then you can follow with me. The full verse says, For since he himself, that's Christ, was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now that's the conclusion of, a, of an argument that's being laid out, which is why there's the four since at the beginning of it. But just take the statement, He himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Oh, that's wonderful. 
that we have a saviour, that we have a God who is able to come to the aid of those of us who are tempted. Hands up who that applies to. That's all of us. It's all of us. We can appeal to God our saviour who will come to aid us who are being tempted so that we will not pursue the root of sin to death. It's a remarkable thing. He himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Now, I don't think that's just referring to his sufferings on the cross. I think that's referring to the whole of the Lord Jesus' life when he suffered as a perfect, sinless, son of God human being on this planet. He suffered facing all of this sin. And there was temptation there. Turn over to Hebrews 4. And you see it again. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we would say that applies to when the people of God together gather for prayer. But we appeal through prayer as individuals too to the one who knows our weaknesses where it tells us who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now this has baffled many minds and mine too. How can we say that the sinless son of God who walked on this earth was tempted because we've just read through James that God is not tempted by evil. So how does this work? God the Son who came into humanity had humbled himself to the weaknesses of humanity. And I believe this scripture is saying that there was no response in him that ended up with sin. But you look at the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 and we are told that He was led by the Spirit, and in the power of the Spirit, he went into the wilderness for 40 days. And at the end of that time, it says, the devil came to him to tempt him. And three temptations came. And I think they match up with what John tells us in 1 John 5. The lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and the pride of life. That summarizes it all. Satan comes at the Lord Jesus in his weakness as a human being and tempts him. Now you have to go off and look at that yourselves later. What? What was his response? There was no sin in it. But the temptation was real for him as a human being. But he did not pursue the thought process or the action process to command the stones to turn into bread that he might be satisfied in the deepest of his hungers at that moment. Nor to respond at that moment that he might have the adulation of people in the world. He knew that would come. So as the son of God, he was perfect. As the son of man, he was perfect. And there was nothing in him that would lead to sin. But his temptation was real. Let's never say that it wasn't. Well, because he was God, he couldn't be tempted by evil. When God takes on humanity and comes into the humbling state of being a man, then he faces the same thing. So he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that wonderful? That the Son of God came through this life victorious over sin. As an example to us. 
that he is the one then, and because he has been tempted, we can run to him and appeal to him, and he comes to the aid of us, all of us, who are being tempted. How did the Lord respond? You'll know this, many of you, that he responded by quoting scripture back at Satan. Three times the temptations came and appealing to different things in his human nature. But the Lord did not allow that to persist to anything that would end up conceiving sin. He responded with the word of God. And there's a vital lesson here. If you're not in the word of God, you're going to be taken hook, line and sinker all the time. Be in the word of God and have the word of God in you so that you can respond in the moment of deepest, most difficult temptation. Psalm 119 verse 11 is one of my favourites. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So we come to the word of God and we repeatedly read it and we see in it who God is and we repeatedly see in it who Jesus is, the saviour that God provided for us as sinners to take us from the judgment of sin because he himself was prepared to live a sinless life and able to live a sinless life knowing that he would go to the cross there to be the sin bearer. That's the majesty of who Jesus is. He's the one who came to fix the sin problem that we could not fix ourselves. And he was tempted in all things, but he was always looking to the cross because he knew there he would suffer the wrath of God against sin and sinners as he would bear the judgment of God for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, I think that verse is replacing John 10.10 for me. I'm loving it. What we have become in Christ, who became for us the sin bearer. There's the marvellous, wonderful truth of who God is, that he would save us from sin. He's proven it in the cross and he's proven the victory to us now that as Christians we can go forward in this. Thank you for that victory that I can lay hold of every single moment of the day when I am tempted. And you probably are like me. There are times even when you're dreaming, there are things in your dreams that are a temptation to. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this body of death? The victory is secure in Christ, of course. You know, it's wonderful that the Lord turned to his disciples. We read about this in Luke 22 and verse 28. Just quickly, you go off and think about this. He turned to them and he said, you are those who have stood with me in my trials. It's the same word. You stood with me in all of these temptations. The Lord valued his disciples and that togetherness with those men and the women who followed as well in their togetherness for the glory of God. And now it's switched around and we can say, thank you, Lord, for standing with me in my trials. How wonderful it is. Paul could say, he says, all had forsaken me and fled, but the Lord stood with me. When he was most... Most struggling in one of his prison experiences, the Lord stood with me. Let the Lord stand with you as you face temptation. Now verse 18 is where we must finish. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I think James is there referring to the first Christians as being first fruits, something new that was coming. And the first fruits just promised the rest of the harvest. Uh, so we'll leave that one there where it is. We are the rest of the harvest. 
So James was referring to himself and the disciples in that statement. But it's the earlier bit. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. They brought us forth. It's the giving birth. This is the new birth that God gives to us through the word. Notice the importance of this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We come to faith and into the forgiveness of God by hearing what God has done for us. We come to faith by hearing who God is and who we are and then responding rightly as God gives us the grace to respond and the faith to come to lay hold of him and say thank you God for all you are for me in Christ. I see it there at Calvary and I see it in the one who was raised from the dead. The exercise of his will was to bring forth a birth that was so joyously wonderful in contrast to the hideous birth of sin and death that James is contrasting it with in the verses earlier. This is God's work. So the word of truth, just to finish, is the means by which we come to enjoy the new birth, being born again. And it is the means of bringing us to full maturity in God's things as we rightly endure trial and temptation and know the victory of the life that God gives us through Christ in his strength we can overcome when faced with these very difficult circumstances. James then moves on in his thinking to receiving the word and that's where David will take you next time. Receive meekly the word that's implanted. So you can see the logic of his, his appeal and his argument. I'm hoping this systematic approach to it shows why we should do it this way. Because we see how something develops to God's glory. But be encouraged that he comes to the aid of all those who are tempted. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.